0: Hey there, you found the Saving Delaware History Podcast. I'm your host, and our guest for this episode is Stephanie Soda, an archaeologist for the State Historic Preservation Office. Uh, Could you answer for us the simple question, what is maritime archaeology?
1: So maritime archaeology, to quote George Bass, who's one of, if not the founding fathers of maritime archaeology, um, is at its core still just archaeology. And archaeology is the study of the human past through analysis of physical remains and maritime archaeology does just that. Um, oftentimes the themes studied are also related to study of shipwrecks or seaf- seafaring technology, but it's not just limited to that. Um, the main research goals and principles remain largely the same um, between maritime and terrestrial, terrestrial archaeology, <laughs> excuse me. but the differences can be the environment um, in which it's studied adaptation of techniques to that environment. Um, so through maritime archaeology can include terrestrial sites with maritime themes, such as the studies of harbors and mills, um, or underwater projects with non-nautical themes, such as sites that have been submerged through time, like sunken aircraft studies. Um, maritime archaeology as a discipline is pretty diverse, but what it definitely isn't <laughs> is relic collecting, treasure hunting or salvaging. An important thing to acknowledge is that Maritime Archaeology includes the analysis of um, what is discovered and that it is disseminated to the public and other academics for review. And why is that important? (laughs) Maritime Archaeology is so important in general, uh, but also specific to Delaware because you can't look at the history of the area without acknowledging dependence on water. Um, Native American tribes of Delaware utilized waterways for trade and subsistence, um, travel in general, and a lot of sites relating to pre-contact life is within about 100 to 200 meters of historic waterways. Um, for example, there's a site that was surveyed in a tidal marsh up near the Christiana River, and uh, within a half-mile radius there are several sites that were surveyed. It was multi-component, um, it had woodland one with the two artifacts, and who knows what else was underneath that that had disappeared or been buried with the ebb and flow of the tide. Um, Delaware's history as a European settlement and now as an American state can't be fully analyzed until you account for the fact that its evolution was dependent on exploration on the water and trade, uh, warfare, communication, other economic factors related to vessels along the water. So it's really important uh, in order to fully study the human past and Delaware history.
0: How do archaeologists like yourself uncover artifacts and other information when it's already hidden under the water
1: <laughs> um so carefully <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, the
1: underwater environment uh can be very dangerous and there are a lot of hazards that you know you need to be aware of either animals um you know the actual traits of the water is it fast moving is it dark but really um what we do underwater is very similar to what we do on land just with some tricks of the trade so just like in on land you know, you use your geophysical surveys. So you look at what's underneath the water without going in the water. You use magnetometers, side scan sonars, multi-beam sonars. This is all used like towing behind a boat. Um, And then when you do want to get your fins wet, you do subsurface surveying, which can be um, ground truthing those geophysical survey data where you use what you learned from the magnetometer survey or side scan sonar, and you just check to see what it is that, you know, beeped on it. (laughs) Um, You create site plans underwater. You actually can draw underwater on mylar. Um, You record the wreck, you know, inch by inch or centimeter by centimeter, whatever you're using. Um, And then there's excavation, just like on land, where, you know, you can dredge, which is where you essentially suck all the sand and the mud away from the wreck. Um, And this either helps you see the wreck better or will actually pull artifacts up into the dredge that can be screened a little bit further away from the wreck. Um, grids can help you excavate small parts of the site. And then you use tools just like on land. Um, you know, you hammer and chisel, you carjacks, or sometimes you mm-hmm. use saws. So I personally carried a handsaw into the water before to get a sample. So it really is just like on land, just a little bit of different tactics.
0: So, what you mentioned, you've already used a hand saw. What is your other background with maritime archaeology?
1: Um, So, I actually didn't start out in archaeology. I was going to school for a criminal justice major, and um, my junior year, I decided I wanted to do an anthropology minor. I also got into diving at the time as well, Um, and I started doing some scientific diving trips, and I will say, just because you start somewhere, you don't go in a direction. So, the scientific diving I was doing was biology, which... I liked, um, but, you know, I loved archaeology as a kid, and uh, one my two favorite things in the world, diving archaeology, you can put them together, apparently. So I decided to go uh, to grad school, I went down to ECU, um, it involved taking classes, extra dive training, so sure that you're safe underwater, personal research, um, I did several fields, that are, um, or just um, doing on land maritime themes, like I kind of mentioned earlier. And then I was crew chief for some projects abroad. And now I work here and I'm hoping to expand (laughs) Delaware's horizons a little bit in
0: the maritime realm. So how does that work? What are you doing at the State Historic Preservation Office now to expand maritime archaeology?
1: Um, So mostly what I do is Section 106, which just means that federal agencies have to account for their impacts to historic properties. And a lot of maritime surveys have actually occurred in the state because of the Section 106 process. And I get to address their scope of work um, and what they do to mitigate effects to our maritime cultural resources. But going forward, I really hope to kickstart some projects geared towards addressing preservation of maritime resources. Um, I've been able to do some public outreach since starting here that is specific to our maritime cultural resources, and in fact, I'll be doing a presentation um, in May for Preservation Month of Delaware. Um, I think citizen science is really important, and I hope that CHPO can jumpstart um, some public archaeology projects that are centered on maritime resources, and also specifically coastal uh, terrestrial sites that are at risk from erosion and sea level rise. so on the one hand, Delaware does not have a very active program specific to maritime archaeology, but it is certainly has the capacity to do so. Um, given the state has such a long coast, uh, its extensive tidal marshes and river systems, there's absolutely potential to explore it. Um, and this, you know, this is. Now, the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development, uh, it's kicking off this year, going through 2030, so I'm really hoping that we as a state agency can kind of tap into that attention and devote some more of our attention to our maritime resources.
0: And what are some of those maritime resources, shipwrecks or otherwise?
1: I'll probably mostly focus on the shipwrecks, since people love to hear about the shipwrecks. Um, They are pretty fun. So one of our biggest one that everyone kind of seems to, to know about is the Roosevelt Inlet shipwreck. Um, so this, uh, in 2004, a dredge actually hit a 19th century shipwreck off the coast of Lewis Beach. Um, artifacts were strewn all over the place. 40,000 artifacts were collected from the beach um, and subsequent remote surveys located the whole remains. So then in 2006, They decided to do a phase one and phase two survey, which was another remote sensing survey and a controlled excavation. And what they found was that the vessel appears to have been an inbound merchant vessel loaded with cargo bound for Philadelphia, um, which was one of the most active ports in North America at the time. Um, It may not have been bound for Philadelphia um, and it was only taking shelter in the Delaware Bay, but researchers lean more towards the Philadelphia route um, because of the cargo. And a review of the artifacts that they found um, recovered during the investigation uh, indicated that it had grounded in the shallows um, off of Roosevelt and Lent and became stranded. Um, Review of primary and secondary sources have kind of identified 31 vessels that um, had stranded between 1972 and 1800, which is about when they think this occurred. So that did narrow down some candidates for what the wreck actually is, Uh, but The lack of hull remains indicate that the vessel was likely extensively salvaged by owners, uh, insurers, or wreckers and residents of Lewis, which was very common um, at the time. And it was also exposed to environmental conditions, which affected the vessel's integrity. So there was no way to determine what type of vessel it was due to the lack of hull remains, which is one of the key ways that people narrow down even more. So unfortunately, (laughs) it didn't help narrow it down from those 31 vessels it could be. But um, the lack of ballast that the the cargo had, um, the amount of goods it had, and the whole point to being inbound merchant uh, heading for Philadelphia, uh, likely in trade between Northern Europe and North America. So we still don't know what record is, but they have narrowed it down from that 31 to about five potential candidates. Um, So the Roosevelt Unlet Shipwreck was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2006, and is the only shipwreck in Delaware to be on the National Register. Um, It can be pretty difficult to get sites on the register um, in general because you need to meet requirements of significance and integrity of site. And because wrecks and underwater sites are in such a volatile environment, it can be really hard to meet the requirements for integrity. Uh, But thankfully, the Roosevelt Inlet Shipwreck proves that it can be done and it can be done in
0: Delaware.
1: So hopefully we'll keep that momentum going.
0: (laughs) So you mentioned that people would salvage... um parts from the hull, even just like residents, how would they get out there? And what would they want from a ship that was submerged?
1: Well, like I said before, um, these were cargo ships. So those goods were still there. Um, Usually the first people to salvage were um, actually hired by the company that owned the ship um, to try to get what they had. Um, That was a loss of revenue for them if they wrecked. So they would send people out to see if it was um, able to be salvaged. And even getting parts of the wreck are really important because um, that can actually a non-Delaware example, Bermuda actually, they, they would go salvage out because they didn't have a lot of wood on the island. So that would help them build houses um, and things like that. One of the one of a Delaware example is when the Cape Henlopen lighthouse actually collapsed into the sea. There were reports that people were salvaging um, a lot of the bricks and reusing it to build houses. So there was a an interesting salvage kind of history, and you can see that sometimes in shipwrecks. And then there are people that go later and just try to get whatever's left, if anything's left, so.
0: And does that apply to the Debrac shipwreck as well?
1: Uh, yes, it does. So the Debrac a little
0: bit of a hard one to
1: discuss because while the remains of the Debrac, including some of the hull, is in the care of the state of Delaware and the HCA, it really had a rough start Um, The Dubrak was a Dutch ship that was captured by the British in the 1790s, and while it was in the Delaware Bay, it capsized in May of 1798. Um, Salvage efforts were made for a few months afterwards, um, and it was pretty unsuccessful, so it was chalked up uh, to a loss by the British Admiralty. Um, So fast forward to the 1980s, and there are rumors going around that the shipwreck is full of treasure. Um, So Delaware contracted out to a salvage company called Subsal uh, to conduct the work and because it was rumored to have treasure on it that's really what people focused on. (laughs) Um, So when no treasure was found, Subsal decided to raise the wreck and when that occurred it fractured the hull and it resulted in artifacts being strewn back into the water. Um, So unfortunately, a lot of the context of the wreck was destroyed with the salvage efforts. And so some information can not be resurrected. Um, But at the time, maritime archaeology was still a fledgling discipline. um, But how that salvage effort went actually meant that some changes were going to be made in the long run. um, Because of what happened, abroad was actually used as a case study for the introduction of the Abandoned Shipwrecks Act that was signed in 1988. Um, And since then, the state has put so much time and energy um, back into Dubrak in order to determine as much information as they can from it, out of the thousands of artifacts that were found and parts of the hall that thankfully were saved, um, including the keel and the keelson. Um, everything's being preserved so that future generations can still learn from the Debrok. And it's important that we all look back at the situation and view it in a productive manner. You know, How have we all changed since then as a state, as a discipline? Overall, we've come a long way since then, and we now have um, bigger and better methods of technology in order to protect these resources. And usually, preservation in place instead of full excavations or salvage in order to keep them safe.
0: Are there any other shipwrecks that Delaware has that we could talk about?
1: So this is one of my favorites because it's it's a little different than what people expect um, because it's not necessarily a shipwreck so much as it is a a wreck that you know there a ship that wrecked. Um, so in 1785, the faithful steward foundered on the shoal near the Indian River inlet. Um, and unfortunately, despite being close to shore, many of the crew and passengers could not swim, um, which led to only 63 survivors out uh, of the total 244. Um, over time, the ship broke apart um, or was likely salvaged for resources and it eventually disappeared. But years after the ship broke apart, coins started washing up on shore nearby um, to where the wreck occurred what many people know is Coin Beach. And while this isn't really considered a resource to Delaware at this time, it really could be considered one by accounting for it within the maritime cultural landscape. Um, so the wreck itself may not be there, but the debris field of the wreck, um, whether it for sure is the faithful steward or not, is there. Um, a debris field is an area that contains the debris of wreckage. So if a ship hit something and sank immediately, um, that debris field would be very small. Um, But if a ship hit a shoal and was still able to kind of like hobble closer to shore, but they had to dump some of their cargo to lighten the ship in order to make it, that debris field could be extremely large, starting from where that first piece of cargo went over. Uh, I think this is a cool example because it helps people think outside of the box of what you consider to be a, a maritime resource or a shipwreck.
0: So I always like using that example. I don't know if it'll fit, but I was uh, reading up on you, and it mentioned that you'd written like a report called It Rained Fire, and I did not know if that had anything to do with maritime archaeology, but it seemed really interesting.
1: Um, so It Rained Fire was a, a book I wrote um, that was part of my research at ECU. Um, it's kind of maritime related. Um, my research focused on the indigenous experience of World War II in Saipan. Saipan is a very small island in the Pacific, um, that was a really crucial point for the Japanese forces. And so um, the U.S. decided they wanted to take it. Um, They didn't plan great, so unfortunately, um, the the whole island was destroyed, basically. And the indigenous were placed into um, U.S. internment camps on their own island. Um, So part of my um, studies was taking these oral histories from people that have survived since then and some family members um, to see what their experiences were like in these camps, outside of camps, um, you know, just before the war, just after the war, how it was impacted. And one of the elements I really focused on was, um, because there's two indigenous groups, the the Chamorro and the Carolinian, and the Carolinian, um, they've really heavily focused on the sea, Um, a lot of their life is around the sea, fishing, um, you know, that kind of thing, religiously. Um, So some things in the book, um, Rain Fire, uh, do talk about the impact to their lifestyle and their their changes and how they, you know, couldn't go out to sea. They couldn't go collect um, ingredients for their their rituals. They couldn't go out to fish. Um, That was a job given to a different group of people. And how it impacted them after the war, um, and still does to this day.
0: That's really cool. And that that was before your time with Shippo.
1: Yes, that was um, that was from 2018 to 2019. So when I was over there, I went over twice for about a month each time. All
0: right, thank you so much. Thanks, Maddie.